How many of you are glad to be here this morning? How many of you would rather be here than the best hospital in town? Yeah, me too. This is so great. You know, I want to tell you a very quick story. It may or may not have anything to do with my sermon. Uh, We'll figure that out in a few minutes. But we just celebrated Memorial Day this past week, as you know. And in February, I had the privilege to speak at a memorial service for a World War II veteran. Uh, His name was Harry Page. And he was more than just a casual acquaintance, more than just a friend or church member. He was, in fact, a relative of mine. He's the uh, uh, grandfather uh, to my son-in-law, Matt. And Harry was part of that, of course, that great generation, that World War II generation that saved, literally saved the world in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, He served in the Army Air Corps, and um, he was part of a B-24 bomber squadron operating out of southern Italy, and they flew missions into uh, the Balkans and into Austria and even at times into Germany. And it was always very perilous. It was always very dangerous. As a matter of fact, a few Easter's ago when Harry and I were sitting um, in a house together and he's showing me his album, he was meticulous in taking photos and documenting things. And he showed me a photo of another B-24. He was a gunner, the belly gunner in a B-24, And he took a picture of another B-24 flying in formation on a way to a mission. And then he looked at me and said, just moments after I took that picture, that B-24 was hit with anti-aircraft fire and exploded and went down. And I lost some friends that day. Harry said that they were always glad when the P-51 Mustangs showed up, the famed Red Tail Squadron flown by the Tuskegee Airmen, as they escorted them back into southern Italy, and they were able to land safely. And you know, Harry said, every time they got back to base, all the crewmen and pilots and officers, they would gather in the mess in the uh, area, the, the food area, and they would have a party. Do you want to know what they named this party, what they call this party that they had after every mission? They called it, you ready for this? The glad-to-be-alive party. Just let that seep in for a moment. The glad-to-be-alive party. Well, at the conclusion of that memorial service, I made the obvious application that Harry had finished his mission on earth well and had landed safely in heaven. And he was experiencing now the greatest glad to be alive party that any of us will ever, ever experience in our lives. Are you glad to be alive today? That's the question. Not just are you glad to be here. We're happy you're here. I'm happy I'm here. But are you glad to be alive? And when we get to heaven, when each and every one of us who knows the Lord, and we land safely and finish our mission. And join that everlasting, glad-to-be-alive party, we will realize the reason why we're alive. Because it is Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. And that we need to acknowledge this morning that that's the reason why we will be up there. 
And in fact, that's the reason why we serve him while we're down here. I've often said we are saved to serve. Do you believe that? If you weren't saved to serve the moment you got saved, God would have took you out of here so you don't mess up the whole thing. (laughs) But we're saved to serve. And I want to tell you this morning, service is the rent we pay for the space we occupy. Father, God, we just sang, all of us wants all of you. But Lord, in reality, I'm not sure we could handle that, all of you. And even if you just give us part of you today, we're going to be glad that we're alive. We thank you so much for your word. We ask you to speak to our hearts today in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been, as you know, in this great series that Pastor Henny launched some weeks ago called uh, Love Gives. And it is with the subtitle, Unleashing That Spirit of Generosity That Is So Healthy and in fact, therapeutic. You know, I think it was, might, might have been the first sermon or his second sermon, but he made reference, how many of you might remember, he made reference to something that I had shared earlier on a Wednesday night when I did uh, John 3.16 and did what is usually referred to as text reduction strategy. Have, any, have you ever employed that? We're going to put this up here on the screen just so that you can see it. But uh, text reduction strategy, and, and Pastor Henny resonated with him. He thought it was pretty cool. So the main part of John 3.16, which is what the series verse is, of course. So you have, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You start to reduce it. And the reason you're reducing it is so that you can boil it down, kind of an inverted pyramid, to its core principle. What it actually needs to say to us. God so loved the world that he gave a son. God loved the world, he gave a son. God, wor- God loved world, he gave son. God love gave son. Love gave. And therein is the principle of the series that Pastor Henny has been uh, presenting to us in such a great, a great way. And so the spirit of generosity, of course, is based on love. And it's not, again, and he said this numerous times, it's not just about money. Uh, Even just last week, Pastor Henny made reference to the fact that we need to be generous with our entire life, with our time, with our talents, with our treasures. Um, This idea that love gives, listen to me, it always does. Love always gives. It always does. It always will. You can't avoid it. You can't get away from it. How many of you ever heard the story about the little boy that came with his family to church, his mom and dad? And his dad wanted him to feel like he was really part of the action, what was going on. So he gave him a dollar bill so that when the offering uh, was taking place, the little boy could put the dollar in the offering plate and really feel like he had contributed. Well, it came to that part in the service when, in fact, the offering was being taken and the ushers were, just like we do here, you know, passing the buckets, the plates back and forth through the aisles. And as they got closer to the row where the little boy was sitting, and his parents were on one side, and next to him was an elderly lady. And he noticed that she was fumbling through her purse. Obviously, she couldn't find her offering envelope. And as the ushers got closer and closer and closer, 
the little boy noticed that she was getting more frantic, trying to find where that offering envelope is in her purse. And just when they reached their row, the little boy took his dollar, handed it to the, little, the old lady and said, here, take my dollar, I can hide under the seat. <laughs> well, <laughs> when it comes to giving, we can't avoid it. We, we don't want to see any of you hiding under the seat. <laughs> A little bit later on. Love gives. You can't hide from giving. Again, be it time, talents, or your treasure. So love gives. And today, Pastor Henny shared with me before he left, my challenge, my task for today was to go at this theme, love gives, with respect to the idea of service. Today, the giving I want to focus on is the giving back to God in service. Is, would, would you not agree with me, is not service a form of giving? Well, certainly it is. But let's be honest. At times, in fact, we do try to hide under the seat when it comes to serving God because we will start to craft and develop various excuses. I would, but I don't have what it takes. I would, but I don't have the time. I would, but I don't have the skills. I don't have the energy. I don't have the know-how. I don't have this. I don't have that. And I wonder if we would just pause for a moment and reflect on the The abnormality of when addressing God saying, I would, but. (laughs) How curious is that reply, I would, but. When we realize, of course, that love gives, love serves, and love never makes excuses. We need to see how God dealt with this type of response in Scripture. What type of response, Joe? The excuses that sometimes we make. And I'm going to set before you an example that could, in fact, um, blow our minds a little bit. Because he's a larger-than-life personality in the Scripture. There's no doubt about it. There There are many amazing men and women on the page of Scripture. But there may be no more a monumental man, a mountain of a man, as it were, than Moses. Moses. So, Exodus chapter 3, we see that Israel is mired in the mud of Egyptian bondage, and Moses, the middle 40 years of his life, has been spent mired in Midian. And then a burning bush changed the trajectory of his life and the world. Here's the text. We have it for you. Look at this. Exodus chapter 3, verse 10 and following. So now, God says to Moses, so now, you know, here's the speaking to him out of the burning bush. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. What's the next word? What is it? (laughs) But, Moses, see, I, I, I would, but. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. It's not there, but it's implied. But (laughs) Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What? 
is his name? We underline that. What is his name? You see, Moses understood that, especially in the ancient Near East and even in the Middle East today, names are everything because the, the Semitic word, the Hebrew word Shem, which is the word for name, implies reputation. It implies character. So if you've got a name, it's going to reveal your character. Moses is saying, I need a name. I can't just roll up on these people and say, I'm Moses. They say, that's an Egyptian name, which, by the way, it was. I need a name. What shall I tell them? So God says to Moses, here it is. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, don't, don't miss this. God said, also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord. Now, that should be in all capitals in your English translations. The Hebrew word, now listen very carefully. You might even write, want to write it in. Yahweh. Y-A-H-W-E-H. Will you write that down in your notes? Y-A-H-W-E-H, Yahweh. Not Jehovah. Jehovah is not a biblical name for God. It was created in the 12th century. Someone needs to go tell the Watchtower guys. The name is not even a biblical name. It's a hybrid name. It was created. God says, my name is Yahweh. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now again, are you with me? Moses knows he needs a name. To get in the door, he needs the name, he needs the authority, he needs the reputation. But listen, see, this is not enough because he still has another excuse. He has another problem. Even if he had the name, he did not think he could pronounce the name. What? Well, Exodus 4 and Exodus 6. Check it out for yourself. Here's Exodus 4.10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. I am not an eloquent man, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. What does it say next? For I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Slow tongue. In Hebrew, kavod lashon. Lashon tongue, kavod. If you were here a few Wednesday nights ago, Pastor Dan delivered a great message on the word for wait. Uh, assigning it to, as is correct, glory. Because the Hebrew word kavod means wait and is often translated the glory of God. God has weight. Man, that's heavy, we used to say in my generation. Huh? But Moses says... My tongue is heavy. Some translate it, I have a thick tongue. I have problem pronouncing words. Now follow me, guys. You ready? God says, I've got you covered. But you know what? We're going to have a little exercise right now. Everybody say the word God. Everybody. God. What does your tongue just do? Especially at the end. It hit what's called the alveolar ridge, which is right, right behind your front teeth. You feel it? Put your tongue up there. Now say God. God. You feel your tongue hit it at the, with the D? Huh? Say Lord. Lord. What'd your tongue do? Hit the alveolar ridge, right? You say, Pastor Joe, come on, that's English. Okay, fine. Say Elohim. Elohim. Name for God or a title for God. Elohim. What'd your tongue do? Hit the alveolar ridge up there, right? Say Adonai. 
Adonai. You never thought you'd get a lesson on tongues from Pastor Joe, did you? (laughs) Adonai. There it goes. That tongue's flopping around. It's got to move around. It's got to hit the alveolar ridge. Now, you ready for this? You all have to participate. How many are going to participate with me? Just steady yourself and say slowly, Yahweh. Yahweh. Say it again, Yahweh. What'd your tongue do? Didn't do anything. Did you get that? It didn't do anything, just laid there. Because the word Yahweh is taken from the Hebrew verb of being, the verb to be. And it relates then to just, you can breathe it. You don't even have to pronounce it. Say it again with me. Yahweh. Lord, I can't pronounce your name. God said, yes, you can. Just Yahweh. Just breathe the name of God. Isn't that great? And by the way, this is his personal name. Elohim is a title. Adonai is a title. Yahweh is his name based on the verb to be. I am the God who was. I am the God who is. I am the God who will be. I am the I am. Yahweh. You almost don't even need your tongue. So Moses, come on. That's not a good excuse. (laughs) So, Moses, not done yet. Making excuses. We roll into chapter 4. Look at the first five verses. It's in your notes. Moses answered, Okay, <laughs> what if the, but <laughs> what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what's the next six words, guys? What is that in your hand? Hence the title for this sermon today. What is that in your hand? Moses replies, it's a staff. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake. And he, he ran back. The Hebrew says he literally jumped back. And then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Aren't you glad he said the tail, not the head? <laughs> reach back, grab it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to you. Now, come on, Moses. What's your next excuse? Uh, By the way, if you're Moses, what are you thinking right now? It's like, Lord, you you want me to go into the court of the most powerful man on earth, which at that time the Pharaoh of Egypt would have been, the God-man. You want me to go into the court of the most powerful man on earth with a stick? <laughs> like, you know, like they say, you bring a knife to a gunfight. No, it's not going to work too good. So I, I, I suspect, you know, <laughs> Moses is saying, like, Lord, if you're going to send me in there, send me in there with the IDF. Huh? With the Israeli Defense Force. I need some Merkava tanks. I need some, some F-35 Adir jets. Yeah, God said, no. What's that in your hand, Moses? It's just a staff. It's just a stick. It's just a rod. How many of you know in the hand of God 
that stick becomes the rod of God. You know that? How many of you know what the track record is for that stick? Huh? So Moses finally done with, he's exhausted the excuses. He goes to Egypt. Aaron, his brother, he's equipped as well. And so how many of you know what the track record is for this stick? They take on Pharaoh's priest. That stick swallows their sticks, their serpents. Then it's with that stick that the ten plagues come upon Egypt. It's that rod of God that Moses stretches over the Nile. And the Nile River, the lifeblood, the life source of Egypt, literally does become blood, turns red with blood. It's that stick that they hold up to heaven, and all of a sudden the heavens crack open with thunder. It's that stick that Moses holds up, the rod of God, and hail the size of melons fall from the sky. Then, of course, it's the Passover, and then the Exodus stretch it out over the Red Sea, and that body of water splits clean in two, and the Israelites are able to escape Egypt. And then, of course, he does it again with that stick, and the Red Sea uh, drowns the Egyptian chariots. A little bit later, Exodus 17, they come to Rephidim. They're hungry, and they're thirsty. And it's that stick That brings water from the rock. And then a little bit later in chapter 17, verse 9, they have to do battle, this fledgling nation. Now Joshua, their commander, with the Amalekites. And Moses says, don't sweat it. I'm going to sit up here on this hill and uh, with the rod of God in my hand, and you will prevail. And so they're down there in the battle, and Moses is holding the stick up high, and they're winning. And then all of a sudden, you know, have you ever held up something for a while? Your arm starts to burn, you start to drop, and all of a sudden they look up, they don't see the rod of God, and then the Amalekites are winning, and it's kind of going back and forth. So Aaron and her figure it out. They come on either side of Moses. They prop up his arms as he's holding that rod. You know, I, listen, I know we like to raise our hands in worship, and that's great, it's appropriate, But I've heard sermons where they needed to see Moses with his hands held high. It wasn't the hand of Moses. It was in the hand of Moses that was inspiring the children of Israel. They needed to see that rod of God. And the battle was won. You with me? Think of the track record of this stick. Imagine. It's just a shepherd's staff. He used it to nudge stubborn sheep. To Moses, it was just a stick. But to God, it was an instrument to perform miracles. And I want you to know, folks, this uncovers a dynamic principle in the word, I believe. Because did you know it happens elsewhere? Not only, hey, what's that in your hand, Moses? But how about this one? What's in your house? Elisha asks a widow in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 2. And she says, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. And Elisha says, stand back, watch the miracle of God. If you give me what's in your house. Or how about what's in your cupboard, as it were. Elijah asked the widow of Sarephath in 1 Kings 17, 14. Elijah said, look, I'm hungry. What you got? And she says, I've only got enough oil and flour for one more meal. And then me and my son are going to die. And Elijah says, uh, no. 
and the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain on the land. Stand back and watch the miracle. That's all that Old Testament stuff, Pastor Joe. Well, okay. How about this one? Hey, what's in the bag? What's in your bag? Andrew says, well, I just got this from this little boy. And it's uh, five barley loaves and two small fish. Jesus said, everybody sit down, stand back and watch the miracle. What's in your hand? What's in your bag? What's in your house? Stand back and watch the miracle. But the key is, you got to give it to God. Amen? You have to give it to God. See, it makes no difference. Listen to me, guys. It makes no difference how small that something is. What's that in your hands, Samson? It's just a jawbone of an ass. What's that in your hand, David? It's just a small slingshot, a couple small stones. What's that in your hand, Mary? It's just a flask of perfume. And, and this principle works a number of ways, not only that way, but kind of the similar principle. What's that, Gideon? You think you need 32,000 people for this battle? I only need 300 to defeat the Ammonites, the Midianites, and the Mosquito Bites. I don't need that many. And by the way, he didn't even use the 300. We have to acknowledge an important and corollary truth, in my opinion. Because by default, we are always tracking along a tendency to underestimate what we have. We, we do. And when we do that, we fail to see that what we have, listen, we fail to see that what we have, once given to God, is always going to be enough. So, listen, we have to do a reset. We don't accept the default. And we focus not on what we don't have, but rather on what we do have. And when you do that, then, listen, the only question is, have you made what you have? Have you made what you do have available to God? Oh, that's the question. You see, to be used, whatever it is, Listen to me, to be used, whatever it is, it has to be made available to God. I don't know where we got this in the church, but listen, God is not as interested in your ability as he is in your availability. There's all kinds of people running around the church with ability and they're not being used because they've got the excuses. And there are people who don't have nowhere near that, or that ability, but they say, when you open the door, I'll be there. I'll show up. I'm available. Use me. And God is saying, yep, yep, there's the stick. There's the bag. Come on, guys, think about it. Even if it's just a stick, God carries a bigger stick. <laughs> and what he has has a way of becoming bigger and better than anything you could ever imagine. Because what he does through his spirit can defeat the enemy, deliver the needy, feed the multitude, secure the victory. So what do you have in the bag? What do you have in the pot? What do you have in the house? What do you have in your hand today? 
really? I can use? Yes. <laughs> yes. You know what that means in the Greek? Yes. like that great little poem that became a song so many decades ago. Little becomes much when placed in the master's hand. So once again, we try to hide under the seat because we think we just don't have what it takes to serve, to give, to get the job done. I need to share this with you really quick, uh, but consider this. Listen, what hinders us, shifting gears a little bit, what hinders us from giving back to God? Let's just analyze that for a moment. I think that's uh, would be helpful for us to do that. Let's just analyze for a moment. What, what is it that really hinders it? What, what motivates the excuses? Well, I, I've, I've thought about this, and I've come up with three thoughts. See if they resonate with you. Number one, we deny what we have. huh? Number two, we discount what we have. And number three, we, uh-oh, despise what we have. Well, I don't have what he has. I don't have what she has. We don't realize that what we have is something that God can use. We feel it's not enough. It won't work. It's too small. But Zechariah the prophet reminds us, God through the prophet reminds us, do not despise the day of small things. Hey, like that. God can take a jawbone and defeat an enemy. God can take a stone and deliver an army. And God can take a stick and deliver a nation. Remember this. God is not looking. Listen to me, guys. God is not looking for extraordinary people to do ordinary work. God is looking for ordinary people to do extraordinary work. If we would just clamp onto that, lock onto that. Like I said, do the reset. Don't accept the default position. Go beyond that. And <laughs> this makes so much sense to me. I, I hope it does to you. Because, look, if you really thought you could do it on your own, what would you need the Holy Spirit for? I mean, that, that, that is a, a, an epidemic problem in the church, and it has been for decades. The great late Billy Graham used to say, if God would, which he would not, but if God would withdraw his Holy Spirit from the church, 90% of the work would go on unaffected. <laughs> That's an indictment. I mean, come on. So again, the prophet reminds us, Zechariah 4, 6, is not by might, nor by power, but by, my, but by my spirit. Amen? By my spirit, says the Lord. And I think, at least in part, this is what Paul meant when he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So I'm here. I'm here today to tell you God blesses the small. He blesses the insignificant. He blesses the undervalued. It is a revelatory principle to which Paul refers. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. 
And if you don't believe that, just ask Pharaoh. (laughs) Because in the face of the big, God always blesses the small. And in the face of the mighty, God always blesses and uses the weak. And in the face of the rich, God always blesses the poor. And I said always. And why? It's fair for you to ask. It's fair for us to ask. Why, why God, why do you do that? And the reason why is because big doesn't ensure blessing. And more doesn't mean mighty. And rich doesn't equate to righteousness. That's why. So I'm asking you this morning, what has God put in your hands? Is that a fair question? It's a fair question. I mean, it really is. It could be different for every one of us, although I'm sure there's going to be a lot of overlapping. But what has God put in your hands? Now, by the way, God, I think this is important. God didn't ask. Did you notice this from the Exodus passage? God didn't ask, what's in your hand? How many of you know that? Wait a minute. Isn't that what it, No, he didn't, he didn't say, what's in your hand. What did he say? Come on, yeah. What's that in your hand? See, I love words. I mean, it just why is the that there? And it's important because it shows us that whatever we have in our hands is identifiable. What's that, see, what's that in your hand, Moses? You're holding it. You know what it is. Wow. What's that in your hands? Do you know that? The issue is not what it is, but will you give what it is to God? Will you give that to God? Moses, just stick. God said, I can use that. (laughs) And I can use that. Not a problem for me. So let me summarize as we get ready to close. Love gives by serving. Generously, graciously, courageously with that which God has put in your hand. Don't be afraid to use it. There are going to be some risks. Gotta tell, I got to throw that in there. Going to be some risks. It could turn into a serpent. Just pick it up by the tail. <laughs> God told you that. Don't blame it on God. He told you how to do it. But I'm telling you this morning, God is going to ask you, what's that in your hand? What's in your hand? And some of you right now hear, hear the voice of Samuel L. Jackson saying, what's in your wallet? And although that's a relevant question as well, (laughs) one that Pastor Henny's been pounding away at, (laughs) that really is not a deep enough question, is it? Come on. It's really not a deep enough question because it really comes down to not what's in your wallet or what's in your bag or what's in your hand, but what's in your heart. That's the deeper question. Because if your heart is not connected with God 
And he is not, if you were here on Wednesday nights, no, the center of your life. And it makes no difference what's in your wallet. It makes no difference what's in your hand. You're not giving it. So I want you to think about that today. If our heart is right, the obvious application, listen, if your heart is right, your wallet's going to be right. Your bag's going to be right. Your hand's going to be right. If your heart is right. And in this context, that's the type of generous sacrificial service that we are wanting to unleash. That Pastor Henny is praying will be unleashed. And we, by the way, we can almost use a sort of TRS text reduction strategy on, on his subtitle. Because we're not only talking about unleashing a spirit of generosity, we actually are unleashing the spirit, period. Right? Do you believe that? The spirit of God, you fully get it. Do you fully understand that? That which God has placed in your hand, if you please, is not a that. It is a who. (laughs) It is him. The spirit of God. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3, 5, God supplies his spirit to us to work miracles for us. So don't grieve the spirit of God. Come on. Don't deny what's in your hand. Don't discount what's in your house. Don't despise what's in the bag. Because I say again, we're going to put it on the screen. Listen to me. When you, you ready? When you release to God what's in your hand, God will release for you what's in his hand. That's what we want. And then stand back and watch the miracle. The 1980s rolling into the 1990s, the largest church in the United States of America, Catholic or Protestant or otherwise, was First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana. Pastored by a very controversial figure, to be sure, Jack Hiles. How many of you ever heard the name Jack Hiles? Some of you have. <clears throat> Jack Hiles, when he was first starting, he pastored that church for 40 plus years. When he first started out, church was a few 400 people. He was invited to one of the Sword of the Lord conferences that was very popular in the, the Midwest. And he was a young pastor. And he was sitting on the platform, and there was George Ryan. I mean, there was all these luminary uh, uh, evangelical preachers, pastors, big names for the middle of the 20th century. Young Jack Hiles went to his hotel room that night, uh, and he started to craft and pen the words to a poem to try and capture his emotion of being just kind of a young newcomer on a platform with such luminaries, as it were. This is what he wrote. I'm just a little donkey, midst stallions tall and white. They are each a golden talent, and I, a widow's might. I'm just a little pebble, and each of them a stone. While I'm stumbled bramble, they are trees full grown. I'm just an unclean raven while they are nightingales. I'm a little minnow and they are mighty whales. I'm just a little sparrow, yet they as eagles fly. I tiptoe through the treetops while they soar through the sky. 
I'm just a little ox goat, and sharpened swords are they. While they are giant boulders, I'm just a piece of clay. I'm just a tiny flower, a lily of the field. I'm a little slingshot, and they are mighty shields. Yet, God once used a donkey while stallions envied near. He tells us with the lily that he gives us what we wear. He used a dirty raven to feed his prophet bread, and a little stone was chosen to pierce Goliath's head. He took a little sparrow to show us of his care and used a mite so tiny to teach us how to share. A little cactus bramble was king of all the trees, and he brought down with a slingshot the giant to his knees. He made a worthy vessel with one small piece of clay. Almighty God of mercy, use me in power today. Let's pray together.